So, Dad, I've got you on the air. Tell me, and you can talk, just talk about anything. What is it? Who's this band that you want to... It's not a band, it's a person. If it's, it's the a right person. one. This is someone, and can you Maybe give me some... Him. I don't know if it's him, it might be the wrong person. Can you give me some, con or give my listeners some context about, because you live in northern New South Wales, right? Around a lot of musicians and... Mm-hmm. No, I don't think this is him somehow. Oh, Okay. okay. I just, oh, just ran out of juice. Ran out so, of juice. So who is this person? His name is Iman Dan, and he's a musician and a producer and a community person who's putting together a, a big um, a big land project, 350 acres of land going up to Mount Jerusalem, uh, and, and they intend having regular festivals there. Where's Mount Jerusalem? It's, uh, it's a national park near overlooking Mount Warning. It's um, one end of a trail to Mount Warning that um, the uh, Aboriginal tribes took to regular uh, feasts that they had there. So it's, a very, it's regarded as a very sacred area, and there are many, many sacred sites along that trail from Mount Jerusalem through to uh, Wollumba or Mount Warning. And so, and so that's where, so what's the context of that place in the sky? Because you know, I'm vaguing it because, you know, I'm... Well, yeah. <clears throat> this is the Garden of Eden. This is where um, essentially first creation of language happened. And if um, you look at what... Um, what Stephen Strong and other previous archaeologists have discovered in the area, um, it, it appears to be um, the place that first language originated. And um, so it's a terribly interesting area from that point of view, from an archaeological, historical point of view. Yeah, I, um, we've talked about this before. I, I really, I, actually inspires me to do some more readings from Dark Emu Black Seeds about... Um, the like what uh, some the letters from the uh, first um, uh, colonizers here and just the sophistication of you know and just how much more like there was agriculture and there was just like the, the one of my favorite things with the um, how they made these stone wells by by putting um, fire like lighting big fires on top of rocks um, big rock form uh, on top of rock formations and then pouring cold water onto it so it cracked the rocks and then they'd like flake the rock away and then over time like of, of doing mm. that they created these huge deep rock mm. like stone wells mm. well it's an awful lot of uh, uh, relics and artifacts and so forth in this uh, in this particular area but most important um there are there were uh, 180 large standing stones like stone hinge type sized stones that were magically somehow transported to one particular site and um, the head of the Australian Archaeological Society at the time, a guy named Slater, um, found, found the, the site in 1926 and documented 
all 180 large standing stones plus I think probably another 300 smaller stones and out of which he was able to determine the symbology that created first language. Now when the government got onto this at the time they threatened um, the landowner that they were going to take his land so rather than have that happened as he was in the heavy earth and still is in the heavy earth moving equipment business and had a quarry he bulldozed the stones and hid them. Oh, my God. Hmm. But we know where they are because they've, they've been unearthed and there's a huge battle going on at this point in time. Right. Okay. I'm just... Um, so thanks for listening. More conversations with Dad soon. Hey, everyone. I'm here with my dad and we're having some chats and I've asked him if he would retell... A story he once told me about how he got to be group head at... What was the name of the agency? Oh, no, this was... Well, my first group head job was actually uh, in Myers advertising department. There's a, whole, there's a whole cool story about how you got there. And so um, the back, I'll, I might give them a, bit, a quick intro. So, Dad, you're, you're quite a rebel when you were young. And um, you even have a, like a painting by, who's the artist that painted you? Uh, Roy Church, uh, Betty Church's uh, husband, yeah. Um, did a portrait of my dad when um, you were squatting in the same building in Petrie Terrace? Yeah, I'd um, done another runaway from home thing and I was living in a, a squat that Roy had as his uh, studio. He didn't know we were there uh, for the first two weeks because he hadn't visited his own studio. <laughs> and uh, anyway, he was cool about us staying there. And uh, one day he talked me into letting him uh, do a portrait of me. Um, but when he ran out of red wine, um, I left the building. <laughs> <laughs> and and it's, un it's technically unfinished, isn't it? Yeah, it's technically unfinished. Yeah. But it's beautiful. It's perfect the way it is. You're going to give it to me, right? Yeah, yeah, sure. <laughs> yeah! So, um, so uh, this was when you were about 16? Yep. yep. And then um, when I turned 17, I got a job writing... Um, retail advertising for a, a company called Walton's who had shops all over Australia. I'm going to pause you there because I just... Um, so what happened, D Dad, you rebelled from a bunch of, like, schools. You got kicked out of a heap of them and you no, were in... No, no, oh, didn't you? no, didn't no, you? No, you knew... Oh, well, no, you just... I always you walked. Always walked. Yeah. Okay, all right, you always walked. And But your parents were, like... Um, they, they were fairly... You, were like, grew up middle class, kind oh, yeah, of. Upper yeah, upper middle class. Upper middle class. Oh, cool. I can't really say there was much to complain about. I really, I, well, I they were kind of crazy. They weren't... I mean, it was a bad... It was a bad time for parenting. Like, they thought oh, crazy. That, yeah. But, um, but you made a deal with your dad that if you got a... He said well, if you got a job... Me, he gave me an ultimatum. It was either go back to the last boarding school that I'd run away from, which was run by the Christian buggers, <laughs> and... Uh, or... Um, if I couldn't get the job that I nominated in a week, uh, it was either going back to um, boarding school or to reform school, where the, which was also run by the Christian buggers. So it's just, you know, there's no way to turn, certainly not face down. Um, so I lucked my way into a job because it's a case of who you know, plus also the way the universe treats you. And um, the first place I walked into... A mate of mine was walking out the door as I was walking in and he said, oh, have you come for my job? And I said, what job? And he said, oh, it was in this morning's paper. I hadn't even looked, but he introduced me to the boss and I managed to talk my way into a, 
a job as a message boy in an advertising agency. Uh, I didn't keep it very long because I wasn't uh, very good at being a message boy <laughs> or, or attending work regularly. So um, uh, and the wheels fell off and I lost my job and um, left, um, left home with the help of a mate who had a car and um, ended up uh, in this squat um, for a while. Um, but then things turned uh, upside down, there's some trouble with the police and uh, I had to sort of bail out of that lifestyle and, uh, and get a job. And so, and so this would have, this was the late 60s, this would have been about 68, because I was born 66. in 72. This is 66, yeah. Okay. Yeah, it was a good year, we had the Dylan concert and uh, yeah, yeah. And, and half the audience walked out after half time because he, he, just, he did one set, first set acoustic and the second set electric and so the all the old kind of folk type people uh, you know banded up and yelled out and and walked stormed out at uh, half time which was good and the Beatles I saw that year too it was a pretty interesting year for music and interesting year for me because I kind of managed to escape school and then end up um, in a reasonable kind of career situation and coming up next is more of that story. Yeah, yeah cool. So I always did that. It's a matter of degrees. I bet you feel better after the massage I gave you. Oh, okay. Yes. And the herbal compress. Yeah, very good. Yeah. And so a lot of relief. Uh, yeah, yeah. It's nice. Awesome. I mean, a lack of pain. You know, a huge reduction in pain is equivalent to pleasure. Yeah. 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 You know what I mean? It's like, pretty good. I can lean back and I'm feeling the niceness. Just mm. <laughs> because there's no pain. I, I've got a friend in Sydney that I've just made through Anchor and um, and she's got in a lot of pain and I want to give her the recipes and everything for doing this. Would you mm. recommend that, that she do it? Like, would you recommend that she made these herbal compresses for herself to help oh, her yeah, pain? definitely, yeah. yeah. Yeah, Blackie said say hi because he said uh, tell your daughter, you know, that really worked, that's all. So, yeah, mm -hmm. cool. All right, so this is just a bit he of brief. He suffers a lot still. So, yeah, anybody who's interested in this, um, uh, uh, anybody who's interested in how I make my herbal compresses, please do ask because I want to share this information. It's, um, yeah, it's free and available for anyone who wants to know. Hello and welcome back to Conversations with Dad and we're going to go back to the story of how Dad got started in advertising and where we left off we were talking about how you got your first job so you you got the job as a paperboy it didn't work out message and boy, yeah. a message boy yeah. and then you and then you were in a squat but it was a good year but you were talking about Bob Dylan and that concert mm -hmm. and that was cool Anyway, but, so um, after I'd sort of bailed myself out of, uh, my father helped bail me out of trouble, um, I looked in the paper and there was an ad for a junior copywriter at a retail shop and um, I went for the job and got it. And that was good because suddenly I was making money writing and that's something I thought was um, you know, a good career sort of idea. And so I did that for... A couple of years, and at the end of that period, um, I was working with an art director from Sydney who was a pretty experienced guy, about 10 years older than me, um, and he was knocking out some pretty good 
ads that I was writing for um, the copy for. Anyway, he got sick and there was a bit of a panic and uh, they asked me if I could design some ads in his absence. You know, I didn't have to be able to draw them particularly well, they understood that. And so I designed some ads and they went to press. And apparently they uh, impressed some people because I got a phone call from the uh, advertising manager of a larger um, company, Maya, uh, and they also did classier ads. <laughs> And uh, he said that uh, he asked me to uh, to have lunch, and um, so I didn't realise at the time that the reason he'd asked me to lunch was because he saw the ads in the paper. I assumed he'd asked me to lunch because he'd read my copy. So we went to lunch at the pub. We never really talked about anything much. Money was mentioned, and uh, I, I accepted the job. And uh, two weeks later, I arrived there and was shown my office and I, I looked in and uh, there was a drawing board but no typewriter and I thought oh, this is strange so I kind of um, said to the boss what's going on and he said oh I, I thought you were an art director we you know and he explained that he'd seen the ads in the paper and tracked down who'd done them and can you can you go because you described to me what it was that popped about them and was to do with being influenced you're influenced by American advertising or something could you go talk about that just a little bit well I mean I'm, for me initially I guess I was because I'm uh, a writer who believes in, you know, the less words you can use, the better, I tended to create ads that had big, punchy, you know, headlines with very few words, and that... And Which is that, now clickbait, that's standard now. It was a now. sort of, yeah, it was, just, it was, you know, I guess without realising that I was doing work that was um, uh, similar to a company in America who was doing all the award-winning stuff, Burn, uh, oh, Boyle so and Burn. Oh, so you hadn't seen it. You just intuitively had done it and then yeah, found I, it. Yeah, I just intuitively wow. was a good designer and intuitively, and also intuitively wrote sort of headlines that were catchy and, and you know, minimal. Um, so that was my, my trademark. Um, the, when I... Um, went to these guys who thought they were hiring me as an art director. Um, they had um, art directors, they had writers, copywriters, but they also had um, creative group heads. And the creative group head's job was to write the headline and to do, uh, to do layouts, but generally speaking, they had other people to help them um, both do the layouts and write the copy. They were just sort of more... Um, the creative director of a certain number of those accounts. And so um, when they found out with me that I couldn't actually do high-quality, well-drawn layouts, well, I could, they couldn't, and um, they didn't have a, a, a position for uh, a writer, they were sort of thrown into a bit of a dilemma. But um, their solution worked out well for me because I was only 18, I think, or it might have been just turned 19, um, and uh, their solution was to make me a, a group head um, <laughs> and to re divide up all the all the accounts and to give me you know a slice a slice of accounts um, to be group head of and I was given uh, men's and women's shoes and children's wear and um, men's wear is the big account they put me on and that was fun um, because it involved. Um, 
quite a bit of um, photography and illustration and so forth, and I enjoyed directing the, sh the shoots and uh, briefing the illustrators and, and that part of the work. Uh, oh, now it makes sense, the story about you in the three-piece suits and stuff. <laughs> I have. Well, we did. In advertising in those days, you wore three-piece suits. You know, even message boys wore cool clothes. So um, in all but... Um, in all but one advertising agency in uh, in Brisbane at the time, and that was the place I next worked. So, um, and that was an interesting situation too, because once again it was a misunderstanding. Um, <laughs> I, um, the creative director of, of that particular agency, um, which was the hot agency that that particular year had won every single award in the advertising awards in that town, so um, they were regarded as the hot shop. And they wore T-shirts and jeans and had long hair and all that, whereas everybody else had short hair and three-piece suits. So it was kind of a different uh, different situation. But this guy had seen some ads I'd done at Myers, and uh, when I ran, it was introduced to him in, in uh, a lift one day by another advertising guy. He, he said to me, oh, yeah, I've been watching your stuff. If ever you want a job, give me a call. Um, Nice. Yeah, it was a, a nice sort of a thing. Um, but shortly after that, I was offered a job in another ad agency um, for exactly double the money I was on. Wow. And I was sort of um, tempted mm. into taking that, of course. And yeah. I, I, t I took that job, immediately hated it. I uh. didn't, yeah, and, um, but my dad talked me into um, giving it two weeks. So I gave it two weeks and then I rang the guy from the other agency and he said, oh, yeah, that's fantastic, you rang. Um, this other guy had just resigned. Uh, and, wow. um, you know, so I just had to fill it, uh, you know, wait uh, for the time until he actually left. The other guy was, you know, a rock star. <laughs> he, was, um, he was already in a top band that had had some, you know, top 40 hits. And, you know, he what had band? great hair. Um, the Purple Hearts, um, the band he was in, and then he was joining with the lead guitarist of Manfred Mann, which mm. is a big English band, to, and a drummer to form a three-piece outfit, and that's why he was leaving the advertising game. So I sort of stepped into his shoes and his hair and his <laughs> orange sort of flared <laughs> jeans and walked in in my three-piece suit and felt like an idiot. Um, so... Uh, Immediately took, uh, you know, the next day I was jeans and T-shirts and I grew my hair and a bit, and, you know. And that was, uh, that was a, a fun but challenging kind of um, next four years, I guess I was there, I think. How, what, um, uh, what year yeah. and what age? Uh, talking, well, I was there from the age of 20 to 24, so, and that, so um, 69 through to 73, I started my own business in 73. I'm going to pause it there and I'm going to make us a cup of tea and I'd like to ask you about how you started multivisuals, if that's okay with you, Dad. What do you reckon? Yeah, yeah, I can, uh, I can tell you a few lies about that if you like. <laughs> Thanks, Dad. My name is B. I'm here against my will. Get me out of here. Goodbye. So where we left off, Dad, with the story, you'd been in a few different agencies through a, a string of coincidences and talents. And then you, what made you decide to start your own company? At How old were you? Uh, I was 20, 
three or twenty-four? Twenty-four, must be. Yeah, twenty-four. <clears throat> and uh, the reason I started it was because somebody I knew, who um, owned a photographic business, and who had a, a, a wealthy um, father-in-law, uh, offered to um, set me up in a multimedia business um, because he thought I'd. Um, I'd be a good partner in such a, a scheme. So uh, I resigned from where I was working. Um, oh, first of all, we uh, 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 went in for a government uh, job for the brand new Department of Environment for Queensland for an exhibition audiovisual project. Um, and we won that. And so I resigned from my job and um, worked on that behind the scenes. Um, and then the night before I was to leave the ad agency because I gave them notice and I'd been replaced by a very clever guy and he'd been working uh, with me for two weeks at that point of time and I was all sort of ready to leave and I got a phone call from the guy who was funding me, my mate, and um, advised me that he, he hadn't read the fine print on an agreement he had with his other business partner. I oh, know. And uh, he was unable to, um, to go through with it. So that was, um, that was a bit of a shock. And I was, was I a baby at the time? Yeah, you were. We'd sort of gone from, you know, two incomes and two mouths to feed to one income and uh, three mouths to feed and suddenly we were going into a situation with uh, no income and three mouths to feed. So it was a bit of a... Mm, stressful time. It's extremely stressful period but not for too long because um, the next day there was a, a lunch thing that um, had been put on for me by um, people in the trades and um, your mother's um, not well one of your mother's bosses but he was independently wealthy um, came up to me at the bar during this luncheon and uh, I told him what my problem was just because I knew him on a personal basis and uh, he offered to fund it on the spot. Wow. Um, so I, I went back to the office and I rang my accountant and he said to me, look, um, you know, in 10 years' time the business could be worth a lot of money and he'll have half of it and he would have only put in, you know, proportionally tiny amount. You would have done all the work. He said, never sell yourself for the sake of a few lousy bucks. And I said, oh, God, you know, so I didn't know what to do then. And then it was um, drinks at the at the end of the day, you know, farewell drinks at the agency. And the boss came up to me and he said, "Look, I've I've just been I've just realised um, that uh, your leaving um, creates a bit of a problem. Um, the guy who's replaced you is not uh, a photographer, and in that agency it was unusual. And it was had three companies." Um, an art company, a photography company, and a multimedia company, and I worked for all three of them. <laughs> um, um, but as it turned out, when I was, I was being replaced by somebody who didn't have the photographic experience, not that I had it when I joined them, I had to learn it on the spot, but um, he offered me all their photographic work, um, and he offered me the use of their studio and darkroom to do it in. So <laughs> that was um, fortunate. Because strangely enough, from that moment on, I was making twice as much money from them in half the time. Wow. <laughs> yeah, so that was, um, that was the stroke of good luck. So I was able to um, 
Yeah, I was able to walk out the door that night um, happy that I could still feed the family and, uh, and also knowing that I had an income sufficient to, um, to keep us going and available time left in the week after I'd done their work to, um, to get more work and get it in the more of the field that I was looking for, which was uh, multimedia production work, doing uh, exhibitions and trade displays and such. Okay, I'm just going to pause it there. Watch or do anything. No. I, I've got, I've got. I know, but I'm just saying, like, I, nobody, nobody can get. I can't. Yeah. I, I've got ODD really mm-hmm. bad at the moment. It's, Good. it's. <laughs> mm. What you got there? Oh, is it some poetry? Yeah. You gonna you gonna read it uh, out? Yeah. Well, it's interesting. Well, it's interesting because it's called the drop, and you know the drop is in a music sense. You know, in Duff music, when yeah. it goes from the beginning thing into the desert, go away. <laughs> <laughs> Sprung. Yeah. Yeah, I've called it the drop. I don't suffer fools, some smarties say, and I've said it myself occasionally, and thank God I've changed my thinking to not thinking. Not thinking means no judgement, no taking egoic positions, simply present. That's simply pleasant way to be, and that's good enough for me. Nothing's worth getting excited over, even rolling in four-leaf clover. I'm smoothing out the roller coaster ride sanding the rough edges and cleaning out inside. <sighs> life is but a dream, sweetheart, they sing. The truth is, life is suffering. That's what Buddha said. Death is unavoidable, full stop. Acceptance is the way, take the drop. All right, Dad, I'm keen to just get the like the, the end of the multivisual story. So where we left off, you just managed to scrape by. You, you were working initially out of their studio, and then I guess you got your own space because you've got other clients, and then, and then what? Oh, well, I, I was um, so busy doing photography, I wasn't really able to get much into doing um, multimedia. And so I was lucky enough to meet... Um, your mother's uh, sister's boyfriend, who was a photographer, um, an English guy, around about my age, brilliant. And um, so I offered him a situation that he'd come and work for me for two years, and if it all worked out, that he'd take a third of the business. And uh, that's exactly what happened. Uh, We had two businesses, one called CJ Callanan and Company, like your mother's name, and the other one, multivisuals, the multimedia side. And um, we ran a photographic business that was hugely successful. We just did the very, very cream of the crop photography and we had clients all over Australia, all over the world for that matter. And we had the multimedia uh, company that um, likewise had good success. And so um, that was, well, you know, from age 24 to age 52, that's what filled my life. And would you tell everyone about the uh, the slide projectors, like back back when you first started the multimedia, like the kinds of stuff, the technology back then? 
Yeah, well, the technology was so simple, it was just single slide projectors, uh, perhaps two or three of them that were synchronised up with a audio beep on the... on the. Uh, you had a, a, a mono soundtrack and a beep on the other track of your stereo recorder and that beep op operated the slide projectors. And then it got into punch tape and then it got into computers and that's when it all became um, a lot more fun because we had time code that we could lay down on our soundtracks and then we could have total hundredth of a second accuracy in anything that we wanted to do with all the other equipment and you know there, there were many big shows with dozens of slide projectors and synchronized movie projectors and lighting and dancing girls and smoke and smell and everything imaginable what, in those what, days. Uh, what year was this? What oh, between this? well between 73 and 2001 but the slide projectors were really you know, they were easing out of their usage in the mid-90s because video projecting was becoming bright enough and affordable enough to be able to use it as a, you know, as the main screen kind of medium for doing big presentations. Um, and the last slideshow that I did um, actually had 70 slide projectors wow. in it. It also had, had 54 uh, video sources and... Uh, 400 lots and things like that, but that was a, an, um, the Australian Pavilion at a World Expo in Korea in 1993. Um, and it was a, an experiential ride, uh, and you travel through a kind of a multimedia experience with much projection and much art and uh, a mirrored floor and 10 metre ceiling, and you're travelling in space, and um, it was quite trippy. It was sort of like, um, I won't say like an acid trip because it would embarrass my daughter. <laughs> oh, yeah, I'm, I'm mortified. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it was as close as we could get to a simulated kind of, a, you know, psychedelic kind of experience and it was it worked really well and um, we were voted uh, best pavilion out of the 150-odd countries that were wow. there, yeah, which is pretty cool. What year was that? 93. Oh, yeah. And, um, okay, I'm going to... I'm going to pause it here because I'd like you to talk about the um, silicon graphics computers and, and that whole era. So, oh, yes. coming yeah, up yeah, next. Yeah. So, Dad, 1993 was a game changer because there was new software that came out, you were saying called Flame? Yeah, uh, and it really made green screen a um, vastly better proposition than it had been until then. Uh, it had all sorts of other morphing software, um, tracking software, all that stuff built into it. And it became the kind of new standard for post-production and so a whole bunch of movies came out um, done with flame. Um, and because I knew Gary um, previously, because I knew him from uh, when he worked for a friend of mine in Melbourne, and I actually gave him his first freelance job when he went out on his own uh, using software, 3D animation software he'd written. Um, and so we knew what he was doing, so we ordered the software and uh, we, along with the guys in New Zealand who did Lord of the Rings, were the first two world customers um, for, for the stuff back in wow. 93. Yeah, so whenever we wanted the, the only technician that uh, Gary had, he was in New Zealand, and whenever they wanted him, of course, you know, he was with us. So it was a, a bit crazy in the early days, but we really made a big move into post-production um, 
by getting the software and getting hardware and um, we'd already moved from 1987 we got into 3D animation um, and so we were already six years into doing that at that point of time so it really worked in well with uh, with our facilities side of the business doing uh, animated television commercials and special effect commercials along with our own films that we made which we integrated a lot of 3D animation and uh, other special effects using flame and so forth. So, you know, we spent a lot of money. Um, the money we made at Expo, I guess we spent on, uh, 93, we spent on um, on setting up uh, more broadcast um, edit suites and things like that and got more into that side of the game. So, do you want to talk about the years from 96 to when the business closed in 2001? Yeah, well, 96, um, we completed a project that we actually started in, uh, first discussing in 93, um, on the recommendation of our um, Australian Pavilion Expo client. Um, we were able to get the Jabagai Aboriginal Cultural Centre and be um, essentially concept designers uh, and producers of their two two of their three theatres and their muse the museum. Um, it's essentially an Aboriginal theme park and um, we were required to uh, cr create uh, miracles for very little money and uh, fortunately we had a, a, a very good client who'd done the same thing all around the world for um, the Inuits, uh, they'd done it in, in Hawaii. Um, Aboriginal cultural centres. Um, he wanted us to do something similar to what had been done and what was voted best pavilion at Expo 86 in um, Canada, which was the Spirit Lodge Theatre, which used a, a trick called uh, Pepper's Ghost, which is a, you appear to see holograms uh, interacting with your actors on the stage. And that was going to be the signature attraction and all we had to do was figure out how to do it, <laughs> which we managed to do. And uh, how, did you, how did you figure it out? Uh, performance enhancing drugs um, <laughs> played a huge part in, um, <laughs> in my career. Um, we, we, um, and, and hanging with the right people who are crazy enough to experiment and... Uh, a friend of mine who um, did a huge placebo experiment then convinced me to try some try some stuff with that particular theatre and it came off. We were able to, for the first time, use that trick and make it move around the room effectively by using um, size and focus and sharpness and whatever with the images that we created. We were able to actually use the whole, whole stage and uh, it was a hugely successful um, show and... Uh, it was, um, if, if we'd made money out of it, it would have been the perfect project. But we, we spent three years on it and we pr produced a wonderful film as well um, on the survival of the tribe and a museum uh, in between. And it was a, yeah, it was a great project. So after Jabagai. Well, after Jabagai, the last five years were a bit up and down. There'd been a change of government. Um, it seemed impossible to win any government contract at any level of government, local, state or federal, without bribing somebody, to put it uh, quite bluntly. Um, 
in the state? Was that state? Oh, you were just no, saying it was everywhere. Well, for, everywhere. For example, the Australian Pavilion um, competition uh, for Expo 2000, um, that was won by a company owned by the US Mafia. Really? Um, yeah. Um, at the time, the company was um, under racketeering charges. There was a class action against them. They'd been suspended from the stock exchange. The government had all this information and yet they chose to use this company who had actually had no experience doing this sort of work and made a huge mistake which cost that company eight million dollars themselves. But we had to um, withdraw from the company. So you were saying you, you had to, your multivisuals had to withdraw from the competition? Yeah, because um, we, that was, we were given, uh, it was down to um, just three, um, then the, the, the third person withdrew. He had all the information about the mafia and so forth, which he sent to the papers, of course, none of which they would publish, mm. um, being mainstream media. Um, um, we were uh, presented with a sample contract, um, and, of course, on reading it, our lawyers told, it, told us it was uninsurable, um, <laughs> and you need to be able to insure, you know, insuring a government contract's no problem normally, so you can get the cash flow to do it, but they'd written it in such a way it was uninsurable, um, so we had to actually withdraw and let the other guys take the cake. Um, they had no experience doing design and construct sort of work, and they didn't notice an asterisk which um, said, this assumes this building is being constructed in the Sydney metropolitan area. Of course, it was being constructed in Hanover in a fairground. German building prices are like triple hours. It cost them $8 million. That stupid little asterisk didn't do us any good. Um, it just made me very, very angry. And similar things happened at state and um, local government level competitions that, you know, we should have, we, you know, absolutely won. But we didn't win, so it was getting tough. Um, and then I had a big idea. I realised uh, to do it, run with it, I'd have to shut the business down because I couldn't do two things at once. So I closed the business down and pursued my big idea. And that's the end of the multivisual yeah. story. Thanks, Dad. And I hope you guys enjoyed listening to that. I hope one day that Caleb, you are listening to this and you get to hear a bit of history about your family. And for the rest of you bastards, you can all piss off. Well, <laughs> history wrecked me. <laughs> history wrecked you. Do you want to say anything to future Caleb? No, goodbye. Hello. <laughs> you know I love you. Goodbye. <laughs> Thanks for listening. You've been on Lulu Island. <laughs>